Our Old Testament passage of scripture is taken from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you'd turn for our second reading to Philippians chapter 1 in the sermon, we'll pick up on this uh, five-star general who pitched a fit. Do you know any generals who pitch fits? I'm going to read to you Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll begin. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses all those as he's sitting down. Remember, the seated position is the place of authority back in Jesus' day, not standing. So Jesus is sitting on a mountain and he addresses uh, the proper way to do acts of righteousness. And he, in regard to prayer, he tells all those who are listening, he says, when it comes to prayer, don't be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they like to go be seen by men and noticed by men. And so they'll, you'll find them praying in the very front of the church. And you'll find them praying out on a street corner in order to be noticed by men. And so Jesus says, if you want for God to be the one who gives you his attention, he says, go into your house and close the door. Maybe, you know, maybe you might light, turn on your light or light a lamp back in those days. Close the door and make sure that you are alone so that you might be seen of God alone and you'll be blessed and rewarded if you do so. Now, as we turn in this text to uh, the Apostle Paul, remember, we're talking about a Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Now, I've been studying for our men's Bible study, so some of that might bleed over into this sermon. But, you know, we're talking about a guy who's a zealot, a guy who's strict for the Word of God, and now God has set him free from his enslavement to morality. He's so proud of his morality. He's been set free from that, and he's now a slave of Jesus Christ. And what is going on here in this passage is the Apostle Paul is opening up the door of his prayer room, and he's letting us on the inside to see him address God the Father through Jesus Christ, who has given him grace and given him peace. The object of praise is God. I thank my God. The one who is praising God is the Apostle in the context of his praise is prayer. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers. So we're going to see him in the prayer room. And most of the time, and I think we do a good job on Wednesday night, we don't always start with petitions on Wednesday night. Y'all know that, don't you? <laughs> we do some praising. And the first thing he does, he's going to get to verse 9. It's going to be in verse 9 where he begins to pray. And this I pray, and he gives us the contents of the petitions. But before he gets to the, to the petitions, he first does the praising. He first enters into praising God. And he is going to praise God, and he's going to give us the causes of his praise. And so the first point is this. The apostle praises God because of their remembrance of him. Because of their remembrance of him. Now look at verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Now I, want to, I want to give you two translations here. In all my remembrance of you. Now a majority of the commentators and a majority of the translators translate it that way. I thank my God every time I remember you. So the idea is every, every time he remembers them, he's praising God. And we remember people and we praise God for them. But I think we can take this second translation as maybe the one that fits the book better. Here's a perfectly legitimate translation for these words. I thank my God for all your remembrance of me. You hear the difference? I thank my God for all your, Philippians, remembrance of me. Not just my remembering you, but all your remembrance of me. Now, when we say that, I thank God for every actual expression of your remembrance of me. 
And so this is talking about the Philippians. And if you read Philippians today, go home and read it today. Go home and close your door and light your lamp and read Philippians today. What you're going to see is the Apostle Paul, he's sitting chained to a cell, in a cell. He's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. And he's praising them for their gift to him. And the gift comes in two different ways. It comes in the form of money, but it also comes in the form of the, the guy who brought the money named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus almost died as he brought their gift to, to him. So it comes in the form of a man and it comes in the form of the money. He says this in, a, in a Philippians 4:10 through 20. He says this, Not that I speak from want about this gift, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Verse 14, Nevertheless, you, Philippians, have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you Philippians sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I have received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now listen to what he's saying. I'm praising you for the financial assistance. But more than that, I'm praising God that he worked in you so that you did that. You see, he's praising God that God worked in their hearts so that they would do that. <laughs> he's not just going, oh, that's great. I'm, I'm glad, you know, my wife, so my wife gave me this Bible, okay? Oh, man, that's great. Well, I'm praising God that I had a wife that wanted to do that. That's what he's saying. I'm praising God that he, he gave you a heart to do this thing. And so he's praising God for the spiritual growth in their lives, uh, that they would remember him, that they would love him, that they would be a partner with him, praising God for every actual expression of your remembrance. So here's a man, <clears throat> and I remember reading this in the commentary. Is he out of sight and out of mind? Well, he's out of sight. He's in a prison. He's chained to a guy, right? I don't know, maybe he doesn't smell too good. But he's chained to this man. He's out of sight, but he's not out of the Philippians' hearts and minds. In fact, he's in their hearts and in their minds. I don't know if you ever think about this. Maybe we should. I remember years ago, the Presbytery sent a gift to one of the missionaries out on the mission field. Sent them a, just, you know, they heard they needed money. And they sent them a gift. And those people said, you remembered me. <laughs> you remembered me. Have you ever said that? You remembered me. Um, one of our churches in California, when I was there, they sent a group of people out to teach English in Uruguay with the Rich Lines. And the Rich Lines, when they heard that they were coming, they were ecstatic. What are you going to do? You think about these folks. They're away from their homes. They're away from, they don't, them brother and sister are not 10 miles down or a few hours away. Their brothers and sisters are thousands of miles away. And all of a sudden, there's this group of people coming to help them out. You remembered me. And don't we do that when we have a baby? So here's these mamas. We have these babies. And then all of a sudden, there's this, here's this girl over here. And here's this woman over here who comes up and delivers meals. You remembered 
me. When we were sick for three weeks, we were sick for three weeks. My wife hates to say that, but it was true, right? We were sick for three weeks. We had people who were ill. You remembered us. My mother's Sunday school class still remembers me in prayer, even today when I'm here with you. My mom, she sends books to me sometimes just out of the blue, and I look at the book and I go, I'm glad I got the book, but I'm glad I got the mother who gave me the book more than that. And you and I, this is what he's telling us. He's praising God that these folks remembered him, and you and I, we should praise God for the folks that remember us. Second, the apostle praises God because of their partnership in the gospel. Look at verse 5. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. It's a partnership united in the truth of the gospel. We start there, in the truth of the gospel. When he speaks of this partnership, he knows they know what gospel means. You know why he knows that they know what the word gospel means? (laughs) Because he's the one who delivered it to them in the first place. So here he is. Remember, he gets the Macedonian vision. He comes all the way to Macedonia in a ship, gets, gets off the ship, goes onto the land. 13 miles he travels in all the way to Philippi. And he comes to this place that has no synagogue because there's not even 10 Jews to form a synagogue. So he goes to this place, a little river, and there's a woman named Lydia. And all the little kids said she's the seller of what? Purple fabric. Yes, the story you need to know that, kiddos. Lydia's the seller of purple fabric, right? And so she's selling the purple fabric, but this is a day she goes and she's praying with some other women and the Apostle Paul begins to preach and the Lord opened her heart and she and her household are saved and then the Lord opened, uh, gave Paul power and he cast a demon out of a girl and then also preached the gospel to a jailer and his family. Well, what did he preach? What's the, what's, the, what's the message? What is the gospel? Well, we get a short sum- summary of it in Acts 16 where he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is that all he said? Do you think that's all he said? <laughs> Let me tell you something. You can go and get your Bibles out today and you can go read Acts chapter 2. And you can read the Apostle Peter's sermon there on the day of Pentecost. You know how long it will take you to read it? Two minutes, 45 seconds. I timed it. Two minutes, 45 seconds. It'll take you to read that sermon. Do you think that's all he preached? (laughs) I'm going to, you know, I've been taught to preach about 33 minutes. That's probably all you can handle, all I can probably keep your attention. Um, But probably not two minutes and 45 seconds. But he probably preached, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he explained who Jesus is. He explained what Jesus did. He explained how we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus. He explained it to them, and they got it, and they were made into a church, the first church in Europe. And many times, I think the word fellowship has fallen on some bad times. I think the word fellowship, participation, we're, we're sort of, it's fell on hard times. We think fellowship is, is sitting around coffee, drinking a few cups of coffee and trading a few stories. Or maybe it gets a little deeper, you know. Uh, when I was when I was uh, forty, I was uh, invited to be on a deer deer um, camp group of guys. They were all they were all about sixty five, and I was forty, so I was the young guy. And they used to sit there and say, "Now, Mark, what we say down here stays down here. If I want my wife to know this, I'll tell her myself." And so there's this little bit more intimacy. 
And then there's a little bit more intimacy. This church, now before I got here, this church, Good Shepherd OPC, y'all entered into some, some fellowship with people, taking care of people during those hurricane episodes, and you, you ministered, and you went out there, and you helped keep people alive. You did all, all these people. Not necessarily everybody becomes a Christian, right? But we go out and help people take care of their homes, keep them alive, keep them fed. And there's this drama in which there's some fellowship. But the fellowship Paul is talking about here is a communion created by God through the gospel. It's something that God is doing. And so think about all these folks. Do you think they had very much in common? Lydia is selling purple fabric. And here's a girl, young girl. She probably needs Lydia to be a mom to her. And here's this little girl. She probably needs the jailer who becomes a Christian to be a father to her. So they're all together, but they're all very, very different. They have probably nothing in common. But the Apostle Paul is praising God for the thing they have in common. The thing they have in common is Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that's what they're united around. When it comes to worldly standards, why are we together? Why are we together? We got a businessman over here. We got a guy who fixes every, every, everything over there and another guy who fixes everything over here. We got teachers. We got people who are human resource people, people who are business people, people who are going to school, people who are moms. We got people who are doing all sorts of stuff, Zamboni people. We got people taking care of children. What do we have in common? Right? My hammer is a computer. Your hammer is a piano. What do we have in common? Well, we have one thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one we have, thing we have in common, and he unites us together. So why do we have fellowship meals? And why do we have Bible studies? And why do we plan for tea parties and execute tea parties? And why do we do all the things that we do? Well, we want to be stuck together so that Acts chapter 2, 42 takes place. We are going to be around the apostles' doctrine. We're going to be around and celebrate the sacrament. We're going to be around and we're going to pray together the prayers. And we're going to praise God. That's what we're all about. If you are actively participating with other Christians only based on your social standing, what about the people above you? What about the people below you? They want it. You'll never get to know them. If you're only... Uh, participating with other Christians who are your age. I need some older folks in my life. You know, when we go to the Presbytery, we always say fathers and brothers. Well, I'm kind of getting close to that father part. But there are a few guys older than me. But we need older folks and younger folks, and we need to be part of all of that. If I only associate with those who talk theology, what about the man who needs to talk theology who isn't there yet? And maybe we open up this saying, we say, you know, we're going to have this Bible study over here and you don't have to understand all of it, but I sure would like for you to be part of it. My wife and I, when we went to church, we had a pastor and this is one of the things that he did. He taught us, he's taught all of us always to be looking at other folks. You are my, when Lori and I, I think this is a good illustration. When I finally told Lori I was in love with her, we decided that we would sit by each other in church, of course, like most people do, right? So um, she's wearing a ring I gave her, and but we said, now you go and talk to your friends when church is over. I'll go talk to my friends when church is over, and we'll meet back together at the end. Because we good, we secure. <laughs> we know what we're going to do at the end, but we want to make sure all the folks know we still love them. 
And then we started going. I'd go to her with her to her friends, and she'd go with me to my friends, and then we would go home. But the goal was always to include everybody. At this wedding last week, I uh, went to the rehearsal dinner that I walked out, and I saw all the tables full of all the folks, and there was this one guy over here with a purple shirt with white polka dots. And he's sitting by himself. And I thought, there's where I'm sitting. What's your name? Well, my name's Mark. Well, my name's Mark too. <laughs> looking for people. Looking for people. Being included. It will hurt our purpose as a church if we exclude people. Include people. Work on including people. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect combinations, but it just shows that you love others. Not only is it unity or a partnership united around the truth of the gospel, but it promotes the truth of the gospel. The apostle is promoting it. This is something dynamic. We unite in the truth so that we might promote the same. So you and I, we promote the gospel. We talk about the gospel. And for the apostle to be in prison, it had become a real obstacle. Some people were going, well, how can he be really the apostle of God? I mean, look at him. He's in prison. Why would God want his man to be in prison? And so there were many people who were preaching according to chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Uh, They were preaching to stir up trouble for the apostle Paul while he's in prison. But the Philippians saw his imprisonment as their imprisonment. They sympathized with him. They were with him all the way. And they suffered with him. And they sent their guy. They sent Epaphroditus. That's the name. You say it five times really fast. Epaphroditus. Say it really fast, right? Sent their guy. They sent their minister with their money. Now here's a question for you. Will you partner in promoting the truth of the gospel? John F. Kennedy Jr. said this. Kent, former president of the United States. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Let's just turn that into scripture. Let's turn that into a scriptural thing. Ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. (laughs) What can you do for Jesus Christ? What can you do to promote Jesus Christ? Can you pray? Can you give? Can you volunteer? Here's the big one. Can you just be present? Dwight always likes to say, just show up. Just show up. Isn't that a good? That's pretty good. Because if you show up, who knows what God will do with you. So this is what the apostle is praising God for. Come and roll up your sleeves. Well, third, it's a partnership of perseverance, persevering in the truth of the gospel. Listen to what it says there in verse 5. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, I want that to be said of this place. From then when all this Bible study started till now, which is in the future. So till now when we have overseers and we have deacons and we have a church that's particularized, this is what we're going for. So here's the apostle, and these guys are persevering. In 49 to 51 A.D., they believe, somewhere in 49 to 51, that's when he lands on shore and goes all the way 13 miles and meets them. He begins to preach the gospel. The church is formed. Now we're in 61 or 62 A.D., and this is 10 years down the road. From then till now, it's something that's been going on, and they've been working together, and they've worked it into each other's hearts. See, one of the things we're going to find out is that Epaphroditus was sent to Paul and Paul sent Timothy to them. So they're working together. 
united in the truth of the gospel, promoted, promoting the truth of the gospel, and persevering in the gospel. Folks, listen, we need to be ready to persevere. Have you ever noticed that? I don't know about you, but that seems to be the question every day. Will I get up and will I go? Will I get up and will I endure? Will I get up and keep pushing through this? I, I don't know who said, said this, but I wrote this down. It's not mine. I don't think it's mine. We must not only claim to be the people of God because we say we are so, but we must be able to back up what we claim with real love and perseverance because it is so. Well, third, the apostle praises God because he's confident in God. He's confident in God. Look at verse 6. This is the one that all of you should have memorized in one of those little packets of Scripture memory cards, you know. Y'all ever seen that? You know, you got your little packet of Scripture memory cards. Verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, he's praising God that these folks remember him. He's praising God that these folks are partnering with Him. But the only reason they remember Him and the only reason they're partnering with Him is because God has worked in them first. They didn't just, they didn't just go, you know, this guy really needs us. Right? They didn't, they, no, they didn't do that. Well, this guy really needs us. No, God worked in their hearts, opened their hearts so that they began to work in the way that they're working. God began the work. He's praising God. He's saying salvation is of the Lord. Now, you remember that statement. You know who said that? Jonah said that. Why did he say that? Why did he say salvation's of the Lord? He was in a bad spot. <laughs> He's praying to God, get him out of that fish's gullet. Get me out of here. And when he did, salvation is of the Lord. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Salvation is of the Lord. And so when the Apostle Paul preaches in Philippi. Luke writes in Acts 16, he says that God opened up Lydia's heart to receive the message preached by Paul more than two minutes and 45 seconds long. Right? He re she received it. And the word opened, are you ready for this? The word opened, if you go look it up in the dictionary, this is what opened means. To open what has been previously closed. Previously closed, but now opened. So in Mark chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus heals a guy who's deaf and he's mute. He said, be opened. And those ears that could not hear and that mouth that could not speak, that those ears were open to hear and that mouth was open to speak. The Bible tells us in Luke 2, 23, every firstborn male opens the womb who opens the womb. I'm just going to stop right there. Now think about kiddos. You know when y'all are little babies? Y'all are in y'all's mama's tummy. It's a safe place. It's a place where you're totally fed. You're completely protected. You can play basketball. You can, you can uh, do all sorts of things in there. If you ever watch some of these videos of these things and these little kids are just in there having a great time and they get hiccups and that's hilarious to watch. It's a safe place. And then you get bigger and bigger and bigger and all of a sudden there's signals to the mama and what was closed is now open and babies pop out. Luke 24, 31, we talked about the Emmaus Road disciples. And remember, remember Jesus comes along and their eyes were not open to know who Jesus was? And they don't know who they're talking to? 
<laughs> and Jesus is opening the scriptures to them, showing them, showing them that, he, that Jesus has risen from the dead from the scriptures. And then they see his hands. And then they recognize him. And later on it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Their brains, their minds that were closed are now open. And the Apostle Paul, it tells us that when he preached, God opened, sovereignly opened her heart. It was previously closed to the truth. God's activity cast out the demon from the slave girl. God's activity is what opened up the jailer's heart to cry out, what must I do to be saved? You know, I'm just going to go ahead and do this. I want to read something to y'all about the jailer. When I was in seminary, I was, um, I was working like, I was behind, if you will, I was in class with guys who had many, many more hours of Greek than me. But I took this course and I slaved away at it. And this is one of the verses that I translated and so it says in verse 25 of Acts 16, it says, but, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Now, the, the thing that's interesting about this is they're praying and singing hymns of praise to God after they've been beaten to pieces. They're bloody. They're in a prison, Paul and Silas. And they're singing hymns of praise to God. And it says this, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, that just seems like the, prison, the prisoners are listening to them. But if you go and you look the word listening up, it's the word Luke would use to listen to somebody's heart like this. They didn't have a stethoscope back in those days. They did this. And he would put his hands on somebody's heart and listen to their heart. And that's how closely these prisoners were listening to them. And I am almost certain that this jailer was listening like that. And he comes rushing in and says, Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? They were listening. He was listening to this. His heart was opened by God's activity. You and I, we have hearts that are closed to the message of the gospel. We don't come into this world going, Hey, teach me the gospel. We come into this world lying. We come into this world. We don't need to be taught how to do what's right. I mean, we need to be taught to do what is right, not how to do what's wrong. We come into the world doing that pretty easy. We have hearts that are closed, and God must open our hearts just like he opened Lydia's heart, just like he opened the jailer's heart to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, why did we read about Naaman? Let me tell you why we read about Naaman. Naaman's a general in the, it, their, the translation in the ESV says uh, Syria, but Aram is also another translation of that. But uh, Naaman's not seeking after God. He's a five-star general in Aram. King loves him. Great man. And God was going to seek after Naaman. He was going to seek to teach Naaman that there's only one true and living God. And so Naaman was given victory over the people of God, Israel. And in that victory, he received a gift. He got a little slave girl. And that little slave girl was serving his wife. And so then it came known to the little girl that Naaman has leprosy. And the little girl looks at her mistress and says, You know, if my master would go down to Israel and meet the man of God, he could be healed. Of course, that, I mean, that got, that got their attention. So they go and they talk to the king of Aram, and they, they set out. Remember how much gold, and I mean silver and gold, and all the clothes and all that. Going to go down and meet the man of God and going to be healed. Isn't that great? And then God begins to beat 
on Naaman's resistance to God. And here's how he does it. Ready? This big entourage of people comes. Nobody like this. No five-star general goes anywhere by himself. Ever. Ever. There he is with his entourage. There he is in front of the prophet's door. Elisha does something. He sends his servant to tell him to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. What I thought... Behold, I thought that you were supposed to come out to me and wave your hand around on the spot, and I thought this was the way it was going to be. You send your servant to me? Look who I am. I'm a five-star general. What are you doing? God's beating on his resistance. God's beating on how he thinks it's supposed to work out. God's going to humble him and bring him to understand there's one true and living God. And so he walks away and he says, my river's down, down here in Aramea. They're so much better than here. And he's got to walk away. And so then his servants come and they begin to beat on his resistance. So what do they say? If this man of God had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? He's just asking you to go dip yourself seven times in this river and you'll be healed. What do you think? And so God's beating on his resistance. And he, I've got in my notes, he tapped out, right? And don't we say, don't they say in some of these things, mate, he tapped out. He said, uncle, God was seeking this man and God brought him into the kingdom. C.S. Lewis describes his own conversion like this. He says that God pursued him with a relentless pursuit and literally beat him into submission. God beating you into submission? That's, that seems to be life for me. Um, submission. Submission to my will. Lewis says this, In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and I prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, that God, that divine humility, which will accept a convert even on these terms. The prodigal son, at least, walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and, and struggling and resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? He was trying to escape, but he's like, I can't. I'm brought in by God. Salvation from start to finish is from the Lord. Well, what is it that's the good work that God's doing on us? And I just want to... Uh, labor on this for a few minutes and then we'll conclude our service Romans eight twenty eight says and we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose and then it's followed by verse 29 where he says this for God those who God foreknew he also predestined to conform to the likeness of his son think about that word conformed that's the beating process See, he loves you so much that he's not going to let you be squeezed into the world's mold. He's not going to do it. He's going to beat on you. He's going to whittle on you. He's going to heat you up and heat you up again and scoop off the dross and heat you up hotter and scoop more dross off. He's going to heat you up seven times until he looks into that metal and he sees his own face. That's the goal. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to teach you to see your sin. He's going to teach you to see that you need Jesus more than you ever thought. And one of the things that's just really fascinating about the world is this. There's just so much of it that we don't know about. 
Mr. Mr. Boeing and Mr. NASA here, I bet he can tell us there's so much of it we just don't know about. Right, bud? And so all these guys, what they do is they go get these gigantic telescopes and they look out there and they look at galaxies and look at stars and they map them all out and they build a bigger and a better one. And guess what? They find more galaxies and they find more stars that you didn't know were out there in the first place. Never saw them before, but there they are. And you and I, you and I, when we come to Christ, you and I, we begin to read our Bibles. You and I, we hook our arms together with each other and we begin to talk to each other and we learn from each other and we learn the Bible and all of a sudden we start seeing things in our lives that we never saw before. We start seeing sin in our lives like we never saw before because the telescope's getting bigger and we're learning more about the Bible and more about the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and God's not knocking us down a notch just to show us that we're zeros or something like that. But he's got a goal. He's working in us and he's, you know, I can't help but say it, folks, and I don't mean it in the wrong way, but I feel like God beats on me. (laughs) I feel like God carves on me and whittles on me and works on me and chisels on me. And sometimes probably I would say that, you know, he says he's the, uh, the one who takes us like clay, and sometimes when he's making it and he's doing all that he does, sometimes he takes pieces of it and he smashes it back down and works on it again. That's what I feel like. I think we could say that Jonah, I, y'all know I love Jonah's story, so Jonah's in a fish. That's a pretty bad place to be. I want y'all to remember, I think I said this when I preached on Jonah year, uh, last year, uh, Jonah wasn't in the belly of a fish singing kumbaya in front of a fire. Jonah had weeds wrapped around his neck, water going up and down, probably think he's suffocating every second. And God's pounding the, the snot out of this man because he's going to get him where he wants him to be. God's going to work on his resistance and work on his resistance to his will until he gets him in the place of obedience. And he cries out, salvation is from the Lord. And that's what God is doing with us. He begins the work. He's going to continue the work. And he's going to complete the work. When Jesus comes, it will be over. The beating process will be over. But until then, get ready for the beating process. And so you, when you go into your prayer closet, you need to remember those who have remembered you. And praise God for that. You need to remember that you are partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need to remember that God is working in you. Start to finish. Working in you. Start to finish. From young all the way to old age. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for this message from your word. We thank you that we can be together. Thank you that we can join arms together and not... We, we need to remember that, Lord, we are with you and we are with each other. Help us to love you and love each other the way we ought. Please forgive us when we do not. But help us to remember, Lord, that you are at work in us. And we pray, we pray, Father, that you will work in us and squeeze us into your mold and not allow us to be squeezed into the world's mold. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.